the point that we need to understand is that no scientist who has ever lived in the 19th century or today goes out and looks at the world with yeah. an empty mind. Every scientist <laughs> has a worldview. Well, I just want to welcome everybody to the Engage Truth podcast. I'm so excited today. This is my very first day being at the Creation Museum. And the first thing I did was I get to connect with you, Dr. Mortensen. It's good to have you on the show today. Oh, it's really good to be with you, Caleb. So I'm, I'm real excited because uh, I would say about a month ago, I got your book here, the, the Great Turning Point, and I'll show it to our viewers here. And this book is excellent because... Well, there's so many reasons, but what, what you're covering in here is so needed, um, not only in the church, but I would say philosophically and the history of geology, because I believe that's really what you're trying to accomplish in here, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the great turning point. Now, this this book, is this kind of the work from your dissertation? Is that right? Yes, it's a shortened version of my PhD thesis, which focused on... Uh, how the millions of years idea developed in the late mm-hmm. 18th and early 19th century, and <clears throat> particularly how the church responded to that. Most of the church quickly compromised with the idea of millions of years. And uh, my thesis focused on a group of authors called the scriptural geologists. That was the collective label for them who, uh, who wrote against these older theories. I think that's so key. You're saying the scriptural geologist, because, of course, as it relates to answers in Genesis, we're here at the Creation Museum. Uh, really, scripture is the ultimate authority. And we're driven by, as, as believers, and I know um, AIG is as well, that scripture is our ultimate authority. And it's an authority issue when we talk about the age of the earth and um, when did death enter as well. But I know sometimes we have people watching uh, my podcast or, or show, Engage Truth show, um, they're thinking, well, why does this matter? And, um, you know, maybe this is a recent development. Maybe the biblical creation or young earth creation um, understanding of history is a recent development. And I think really you trace in here that there's a lack of understanding of the historical roots of the, the shift, or you say in here, the turning point. Yeah. And, and so maybe you want to pack, why, why did you call it the turning point? Well, <clears throat> because I, as I document in the book, um, the, the church, almost, the almost universal belief of the church up until the early 19th century was that God created in six days, uh, about 6,000 years ago from our reference point, and destroyed the world with a global flood at the time of uh, Noah. And I, I documented the commentaries that were <coughs> in use in the 18th and early 19th century, and they all held to that view, almost all of them. Um, and it wasn't until about the night about the 1840s that the commentary started to change reflecting mm-hmm. the the compromise of the church uh, in the earlier decades of the 19th century so this was a, a very significant turning point yeah absolutely and it's you know it's very popular today to say that it only started with Morris or even seventh-day Adventists um, but I think when you go back to early the early church, um, do we see some kind of interaction with that? Maybe not as robust as today, but what kind of interaction do we see? Well, um, there, there's uh, the, the 
the church fathers, uh, Luther, Calvin, mm -hmm. Wesley, all of these men uh, clearly believed in a young earth. Now, what throws some old earthers astray is um, they, they look at some of the early church fathers who they took the days of creation as literal, but they also took them as typological. Oh, yeah. And that each day represented 6,000 or 1,000 years, and they thought, therefore, that um, the history of the world would be a 1,000 years, and then oh. there would be a 1,000-year millennium. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so they, they latch on to that typological interpretation and say, see, they didn't believe the days were literal. But no, they did. They just saw that as a, a another application. Yeah. Uh, they'll also refer to St. Augustine or Augustine, different pronunciations. <laughs> um, and they say, well, he didn't believe in a young earth, but actually he did. And that's one of the things that I document in the book. Um, he believed in a global flood. Mm. He believed the ages of the patriarchs before the flood average 900 years. He believed that Adam was less than 6,000 years before him. The problem with Augustine was he had a faulty Latin translation of the Bible, oh. which in verse chapter 2, verse 4, indicated that God created everything in an instant. Oh, okay. And so he didn't believe in long ages. Uh, he didn't hold to a day-age view. He believed that the creation was in an instant. But Augustine did not know Hebrew. Um, he did not have a really good grasp on Greek, and he mm -hmm. was dependent on, uh, at least until later in his life, after which he had written his commentaries on Genesis. I guess he's working from Jerome's. <clears throat> so, um, but but Augustine was not a was not an old Earth creationist. He was a young Earth creationist who was misled about the days of creation because of a faulty Latin translation. Mm. So um, yeah. really, when we when we look at the history of the church, and even even somebody like Davis Young, who's professor emeritus of geology at Calvin College, who's very strong promoter of millions of years, um, even he admits that the, the almost universal belief of the church for 18 centuries was young Earth creation, and so um, what what uh, historians of geology who look at the early 19th century, they're almost all evolutionists. And so they've, they've put a spin on what happened there. And of course they, they scoff at the, at the scriptural geologists who I did my research on. Mm -hmm. And they say, basically, you know, paint a picture of Bible thumping fundamentalists yeah. uh, who are totally ignorant of geology and the geologists were these noble, let the facts speak for themselves. Yeah. As if they're neutral. Right, right. Yeah. And so um, I had to be very careful in my thesis sure. uh, to <clears throat> not appear to be defending these scriptural geologists in their view of the age of the earth, but I, I was defending them against misrepresentation by their contemporary critics oh, and, yeah, yeah. and later historians uh, who were painting this negative picture of them and, and a, a, you know, a level of ignorance that was yeah. incredible. So I showed that some of these men were very geologically competent mm -hmm. by the standards of their day, yeah, not sure. modern standards. Mm -hmm. And, um, and they, they were 
very knowledgeable in what they wrote. Yeah, that's why I think it's so valuable as I'm going through. I'm going, wait a minute, I haven't heard of these people. And um, it's it's so significant that we understand all the historical roots because, you know, um, it's it's not as if today happened in a vacuum. And we have a lot of chronological snobbery today as if um, everyone in the past was just completely foolish and didn't know anything and um, or we forget um, the developments um, that brought us to perspectives today. Now, of course, when you were explaining that, it made me think about how sometimes people characterize even the Galileo issue of um, the uh, heliocentric, geocentric uh, model and so forth. They're going, oh, was the church in opposition and so forth. And so they almost compare that to today. And I know Dr. Faulkner has interacted with that a lot as well but it's it's interesting as if they're saying well the church kept uh the scientific mind in the dark ages i don't believe that's true uh but it's it's kind of that narrative that they've run with and they try to apply that now to those who have a a younger view of the age of the earth so i don't know what you would add to that just that you know there are very few verses in the bible that even talk about the sun moon and stars yeah um, certainly there's no description of the physical structure of the solar system. Yeah. Um, but Genesis is 11 chapters of history mm-hmm. with a lot of detail, three whole chapters about Noah's flood, which isn't more important than the resurrection mm-hmm. or the, the death of Christ, but there's more chapters yeah. <laughs> devoted to the flood. So yeah. that says this is an important event yeah. um, and a whole chapter on creation and and the fall and the impact of the fall uh, by God's curse on the whole creation. These are foundational truths. And uh, the scriptural geologists of the early 19th century uh, saw those truths and saw they were important. One of the things we need to understand historically is if you look at the history of the church, um, at different times in church history, there were different challenges to Mm -hmm the Orthodox Christian faith. And so in those times of particular challenge, then the church rose up with very detailed responses to their critics. But there was no detailed response to the idea of an old earth because um, this was not a widely held uh, idea. Although um, Augustine, as I was studying his writings, he actually refuted in a very short way. He didn't go into great depth, but he refuted old earth ideas of the pagan Greeks mm. um, that were very similar to the, the theories that were being developed by the pagan geologists in the 18th and 19th century. That's so um, these ideas are not totally new. And evolutionary ideas, Darwin didn't, didn't come up with this idea of evolution. Yeah. yeah and so... These ideas have been around a long time, but they became really dominant in the culture, in the world, in the 18th and 19th century. And that's when the church had to respond in a more in-depth way. Yeah, absolutely. And and even related to what I was saying in Galileo, it wasn't as if Scripture taught that view. And and I know you hit on um, the the leaders of uh, the day had a misunderstanding of Scripture's um, application and breakdown of that. And, um, and it's interesting how those who control the narrative or, um, those who have the microphone, if you will, (laughs) 
end up shaping the view or even the paradigm. Mm -hmm. And we, we clearly see that laid out. And that's why it's, it's so significant, this, this turning point that we have here uh, and how that played out. So um, there's some key players in there, like James Hutton, Charles Lyle. Maybe you can talk some about them. Well, uh, Hutton was up in Scotland. He studied medicine at the university, um, but his real love was rocks. And he published a book, uh, Theory of the Earth in 1795, mm. in which he imagined or speculated that the continents were slowly being eroded into the ocean, wind and water beating against the rocks, carrying little particles to the creeks, which carried those sediments to the rivers, which mm. dumped those sediments on the ocean floor. And then he could see evidence of past volcanic activity in Scotland. And so he imagined that the internal heat of the earth would harden those sediments on the ocean floor. And then from time to time, there would be some convulsion that would raise part of the ocean floor above sea level to become a new landmass. And so he said the, the, the continents are slowly being eroded into the ocean. The ocean floor is being lifted up to become new continents, which will eventually be eroded into the ocean. Hmm. But he never saw a single one of those continents get eroded into the ocean. He never saw a single continent come out of the ocean. He never did any laboratory experiments to show that this theory was true. He was speculating or imagining about the unobservable, unrepeatable past to explain the geological evidence that he saw in the present. And uh, a lot, of, a, a number of people really caught on to this idea um, and uh, they began to expand on it. And Charles Lyell was one. And he didn't study geology in the university. There were no geological degrees at this time. He studied law at Oxford University. And he was a very gifted uh, lawyer. And uh, <clears throat> he published a book in 1831, building on the ideas of Hutton, who died the year he was born. And uh, his book was three volumes entitled Principles of Geology. And he said, there have never been any catastrophic floods of a continental or global scale, as other authors had suggested, um, but that the processes of geological change have have been slow and gradual, uh, primarily, you know, an occasional earthquake or volcano, but most of the geological change is the result of slow, gradual erosion, slow, gradual sedimentation. And because uh, Lyle was so gifted as an author and influential, and he became, he was twice president of the Geological Society uh, uh, the, the London Geological Society, which was the first uh, society of its kind, uh, he was very influential in suppressing other views. And his view, which became known as uniformitarianism, became the ruling view in geology. Yeah. That's but he didn't see any of the millions of years of geological change that he speculated. He never saw any of that happen. Yeah. And he didn't do any lab experiments that proved that his theory was correct. He was he was working within a philosophical framework, a certain set of assumptions that was the, the foundation of his geological theory. Yeah, that's so significant. I appreciate you breaking that down. I, I think when 
people start to see that, okay, here's, here's some of the origins of this. And I know what tends to happen is um, I study logic with our classical conversation student. And I talk about classical conversations a lot on my show because I'm a big advocate for that program, but also uh, the importance of studying logic. Of course, sometimes people bring up, oh, well, this is, is just a genetic fallacy because of the origin. Are you going to say that it's discounted? Uh, however, that's that's not the primary argument. It's just the, the the origin of it, why it's invalid. But I think it's important to understand that where it developed out of and the motivations, right? I don't know if you would add something to that too. Well, exactly. The, the point that we need to understand is that no scientist who has ever lived in the 19th century or today goes out and looks at the world with yeah. an empty mind. Every scientist <laughs> has a worldview. He either believes in God or he doesn't believe in God. He believes this book, the Bible, is the word of God or it's just the words of men. Mm. Um, every scientist has a worldview. Don't let the atheists deceive you into thinking that they are these unbiased, objective pursuers of truth. There's no such person that's ever existed. Yeah. The atheist is just as biased as I am or our Ph.D. geologist, Andrew Snelling. Um, they just have a different bias. They're biased against this book. We're biased for it. And we think there are good, rational uh, reasons to believe this book is what it claims to be, the Word of God. And therefore, the history in this book is uh, without error and uh, doesn't answer every question, but it gives us key truths to understand the world that we live in. I like to illustrate it um, uh, like a police detective. My mm. oldest son was a was a sheriff's deputy for 12 years in oh, Florida. Really? Uh, <clears throat> when, a, when a police detective reports to, let, let's say he, he's told on his radio, you know, go to 27 Johnson Street. Uh, there's a, we've been told there's a dead body in the living room. We want you to investigate, figure out the cause of death. Well, he's only got three options. Mm. It's either murder, yeah. suicide, or death by natural cause. Yeah. Yeah. And so how is he going to figure out what happened in the past? He's not going to, uh, he can't raise the guy from the dead and ask him what happened. Yeah. He's got to look at the evidence. You know, is there a gun on the floor? Is there a suicide note? Was the door broken open? Is there a bottle of pills on the floor? Uh, He's trying to figure out, he's trying to reconstruct the unobservable, unrepeatable past to explain the evidence that he sees in the present. And if he's a good police officer, he's going to go and talk to the neighbors. Yeah. What's he doing? He's looking for an eyewitness. Right. Did you see something? Did you hear something that will help me to interpret the evidence that I see? And every geologist, every biologist, every uh, cosmologist, who's trying to figure out the past history of life or the earth or stars and galaxies, they all have a worldview and they have certain assumptions about what they're going to allow as an explanation in the past. Yeah. If I go back to my, my uh, police detective, if, if the body is a white guy, and he's in a neighborhood where there are a number of so-called black people. And if the police officer is racist, he might, before he ever looks at the evidence, have a predisposition mm. to think this, this is murder by a black man. 
And in mm. fact, there are there are black men who've been in prison for committing a crime they didn't commit yeah. because of uh, racist police yeah. who developed from the physical evidence a very convincing story yeah. that framed that guy when he really wasn't yeah. uh, guilty. And in some cases, it's been an eyewitness that brought truth yeah. into the case that then showed the police actually misinterpreted the evidence. Mm. And once you bring the eyewitness in, it it changes the interpretation. And you see that yeah. actually their interpretation was not the correct interpretation of the yeah. evidence. Yeah, it's so, so key um, that we understand that we, we all have these presuppositions and is it consistent with the reality? And many times this, you demonstrated these um, the presuppositions can skew the facts and, and skew the data. And what I've seen so often is, well, we know these rocks are millions of years old. Why? Because we know they can't be young. Why? Because we know they're millions of years old. And we're like, wait a minute, what, what's going on? Right. And what happened in the early 19th century was people like Hutton and Lyle and yeah. many others that I document in the book, they rejected the eyewitness testimony of the creator in Genesis. And they didn't reject it for any scientific reason. They didn't reject it because they had uh, rational, logical reasons to say this isn't the word of God. Yeah. They simply assumed that it wasn't. Then they ignored it and said mm -hmm. it's irrelevant to the interpretation of the geological evidence. Uh, and so they, in fact, Charles Lyell wrote to a friend yeah. and said, we need to do geology as if the scriptures are not in existence. Mm. And he wanted to free the science of geology from Moses. <laughs> what does he have against Moses? He wants to silence this book. Yeah. But if this is the eyewitness testimony of the creator and God was present at every event recorded in this in the Bible, including Noah's flood and the creation of the world, then um, Lyle is intentionally ignoring a very important source of information yeah. to correctly interpret the geological evidence. I think it's so significant what you laid out there is that he wants to free this, the sciences, pre-geology from Moses, that we really see that it is that presupposition that the flood's not true, yet... We see Second Peter three says people deny the return of Jesus because they deny the flood, <laughs> and they deny creation. That's right. And so I know there's Christians who want to try to compromise on this, but um, really there's no need to. The <laughs> there's excellent um, evidence in the rocks, um, but we first start with the authority of Scripture even before, like Dr. Schnelling confirmed, the folded layers are, are not through metamorphic heating, but they were when they're still wet mm -hmm. after the flood and. Um, incredible things like that, but we see like it's a scriptural authority issue. The apostles and, and Jesus talked about it as real history in the beginning when God mm -hmm. made the male and female. And there, when you mentioned that, I, I first heard it in one of your presentations. And uh, my viewers, if you get a chance, uh, look up the Great Turning Point or Dr. Mortensen on YouTube, and you can see his hour and a half long presentation. I know there's several variations on it online. Um, it's excellent when. When I, I heard that unpacked, it really put the pieces together. Now, there's a section in here. You actually mentioned Francis Bacon, 
um, talking about uh, doing science as if we should do it as if scripture is not true. But yet Bacon was a believer. Is that right? Yes, he was. And uh, what we need to understand is that Bacon was focused on what we like to call operation science mm -hmm. or uh, experimental science. So he was talking about the the kind of science that builds the camera that we're looking yeah. at and uh, the computers, uh, the science of the scientific uh, revolution that produced steam, steam engine mm. and found cures for disease. Uh, but in his understanding, um, and I and I document this in my book, um, he understood Genesis as a as a creation account, okay. uh, as a historical account. And he believed that the laws of nature that scientists are now studying to try to figure out how the creation operates, how how the bodies of creatures work, um, that those laws were instituted during creation mm -hmm. week. Right, right. And the, the creation is operating in a in a regular way because God put those laws into creation and therefore science mm. is possible. We can study an orderly world yeah. that, um, and, and we can learn about it. Right. But he wasn't dealing with, uh, when he wanted to separate the Bible from science, he wasn't dealing with the question of origins. He was dealing with the question of how the creation works oh, okay. today. Yeah. And uh, a lot of people have mis misused Bacon. Okay. So would, would, because of that misuse, you think, I think, wasn't it the uh, the geologists influenced um, by Hutton and, and Lyle that kind of took Bacon in that route? Is sure, that right? they, okay. they 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 tried to use Bacon, and some of my scriptural geologists, you know, said, "No, you've misused Bacon." Mm, okay, that's really so helpful. I, think, sure. I, I wanted to just add um, before we lose that thread. Sure, you know, when when Lyle and others when they rejected the Word of God, they didn't they didn't. Um, go into a mental vacuum. Mm -hmm. They replaced, they, they created their own story. Instead of the eyewitness history of God, they created their own story yeah. to use that as the way of interpreting Genesis, uh, uh, the rocks. So there, there are two assumptions that Hutton and Lyle and others brought into geology that <clears throat> became the, the worldview, the paradigm the presuppositions that control geologists' thinking. The first was that nature is all that exists. Mm. Well, that, that's not a scientific statement. That's a philosophical religious statement. Yeah. It can't be proved by any lab experiments. And it's in contrast to the Bible statement that God exists and nature is the creation of God. It's not all that exists. Yeah. The second assumption that took control of geology is that everything that we're looking at can be explained by time plus chance plus the laws of nature working on matter. So if you have those three things, if you have enough time, millions of years, yeah. chance and the laws of nature, you can explain the origin of the rock layers, the origin of the Grand Canyon, the origin of fossils, the origin of the White Cliffs of Dover. Mm -hmm. You just need enough time, chance, and the laws of nature. Well, that's a, that's a philosophical assumption. Again, that can't be proven by any laboratory experiment. And it is contrary to what the Bible says, yeah. which says, no, everything can't be explained by time and chance and the laws of nature. And there was a global catastrophic flood after a supernatural week of six days of creation. 
So um, these men were, as, as we need to get into the heads of people, they were not unbiased, objective yeah. pursuers of truth, just letting the facts speak for themselves. Yeah, the facts have to be interpreted through a worldview. Right. And I know Answers in Genesis is real big on emphasizing that point, and for good reason. And, you know, I, I think about, for, for many years, um, I, I had grown up understanding evolution's false, but I didn't realize I still had embraced it in areas of my thinking. So you mm-hmm. can in, in reject uh, a general the general paradigm, but you can still not be discipled in, in the area of how should we think of um, even Earth history and 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 how that applies. It, uh, I think there's a lot of naturalistic assumptions or uniformitarian assumptions that people still take for granted, yet they reject the larger narrative, um, even in evangelicalism a lot. Well, and and what um, you know when Charles Darwin went on his famous five-year voyage beginning in 1831. He took on the boat with him the first volume of Charles Lyell's Principles mm. of Geology, and he totally absorbed Lyell's thinking. In fact, when after he came back uh, in a letter in 1844, he said, um, to understand my thinking, you have to understand Lyell's, because uh, basically uh, he, he, uh, he influenced all of my thinking. Yeah. And so even when I was out in South America looking at a geological formation that Lyell had never seen, I saw it through his eyes. And yeah. so Darwin just applied those same two naturalistic assumptions that nature is all that exists, that everything can be explained by time and chance and the laws of nature. He simply applied the same principles, which are not scientific, they're religious and philosophical. He applied it to a study of biology and came up with his naturalistic, atheistic view for the origin of life. And then the cosmologist came along and said, well, we'll use the same principles to explain the origin of stars and galaxies and planets. And uh, and what most Christians, which you've alluded to, yeah. uh, most Christians, at least in America, still would reject Darwinian biological yeah. evolution. Right. But um, most of them, including most of our evangelical theologians, accept millions of years and say it doesn't matter. But they don't understand that biological evolution is grounded in based on the same philosophical assumptions controlling geology and cosmology that produced the millions of years yeah i I love how one of my friends uh, russ miller i'm sure you've heard of him he says the flood is the linchpin of worldviews and i think that's so true because we see that the rejection of the flood was the turning point for saying either it was god's judgment or we're going to try to get rid of that concept and substitute something else, uh, millions of years. And you know what's amazing? When I do uh, campus evangelism at the University of Texas at El Paso, um, I, I regularly talk about flood legends, where I'll mention my friend Nick Ligori's book, and I can immediately get to the gospel. People always think it's a distraction. And this is kind of where I want to really end our time, too, thinking about um, so many people don't even, don't even want to read this. I'm sure there'll be people on here will be like, no, I don't know if I want to read that, or Genesis is just not worth the time. Let's just focus on the gospel. But every time I talk about the flood, I get to the gospel. And uh, we had Dr. Armitage in El Paso, and he was showing evidence of blood clots and dinosaur bones from drowning um, that had evidence of DIC. And um, and we looked under the microscope, and we we saw uh, Demetrodon, Nanos- uh, Nanosaurus, 
um, osteocytes, nerves, and it's incredible. And, and but all of that is confirming the flood, and it segues to the gospel. Um, and it's it's just interesting to me how um, we think it's a distraction when I, I really feel like it it funnels right into God judges sin, He rescues sinners as He did in the ark, and Jesus is the greater ark of salvation. Exactly. Exactly. Genesis is foundational to the gospel. We can't ignore Genesis Mm -hmm. uh, and communicate the gospel with any kind of uh, intellectual consistency uh, or integrity. Uh, But we also can't pick and choose verses and say, well, I believe what the Bible says about Adam made from dust and Eve made from Adam's rib and and that there was a real fall. we can't just pick and choose and say, well, I, I believe those bits and I believe the first verse of Genesis one. And I believe that God created in Genesis one, but then say, but I don't agree that the days are literal. I don't believe that flood was global. I don't, you're just Christians are picking and choosing and there's no consistent Bible study method or, or, or uh, we, we, the big word is hermeneutics mm, or yeah. interpretive method to, to pick and choose out of Genesis 1 to 11 and say, well, that's literal history, uh, but that's figurative, that's symbolic. It can't be done. And every attempt over the last 200 years of Christian scholars uh, has failed, which is why they keep coming up with new attempts, new ways of trying to explain Genesis to, to fit in the millions of years or even yeah. evolution, because the gap theory, the day-age view, that doesn't work. So then they come up with the framework hypothesis and the analogical day view and the revelatory yeah. day view. And they come up with all these different views, and none of them will will stand under scrutiny with an open Bible. And they're all based on pseudoscience, yeah. which has been pounded into uh, the world's minds through the teaching of evolution in millions of years. Yeah, yeah, that's an excellent explanation. You know, uh, I, I've seen you mention a lot, and I want to make sure you, you hit on this um, as we get ready to wrap up, is this this shift that happened within um, big theological um, universities or seminaries, like I believe Princeton, you mentioned um, that it was uh, Warfield and Hodge, excellent men of God, but then there was this issue where they compromised on Genesis and it, it seemed to pave the way for eventual more compromise. Would you agree with that? Or? Oh, yeah. yeah. In, the, in, in the history Princeton. of the church over the last 200 years, there's been, um, as, as it's often called, a slippery slide. Yeah. Uh, first, the church in the early 19th century rejected the biblical chronology and the flood. Mm. Well, first they rejected the flood, and then they rejected the biblical chronology, and then Darwin came along in 1859, and his book, uh, Origin of Species, only dealt with the origin of plants and animals. Yeah. And so then the, the church said, well, okay, plants and animals evolved, but, but man was created supernaturally. And by, by 1859, they had, they'd said, okay, well, man wasn't maybe not 6,000 years ago, maybe farther back. Mm. And then Darwin came with this theory in 1871, and... Um, Descent of man, where he's he's really dealing with human evolution, and then the church said, "Okay, well, okay, um, Adam, his body wasn't created supernaturally; it just evolved. Wow. But then God 
breathed into him and he became uh, homo sapien. He became, you know, made in the image of God. But it was much, much longer ago. And so liberal theology was developing at the same time. Yeah. It embraced all of the evolutionary thinking. Evangelicals knew you've got to have a literal Adam and a literal oh, fall yeah. Absolutely. for the gospel or else right. Jesus died for a mythological problem. So right. they hung on to that. Uh, in the uh, 1910 to 1912, uh, a series of 90 essays were published uh, called The Fundamentals. Yes. And they were they were written by Baptists, Anglican, Congregationalists, right. uh, Methodists, the, the leading fundamental Christians uh, defending the truth of the Bible regarding miracles, the resurrection, yeah. justification by faith. Uh, most of those articles are still well worth reading. Sure. But there were six articles of those 90 that dealt with science, and they were they were all compromised mm. with the millions of years. Um, some of them were anti-evolution, uh, or at least against atheistic evolution. But the, the church yeah. has been compromising, and now we see in, in evangelical circles people who claim to be evangelical Christians who are denying not only the the flood and, and the young earth, but they're now embracing evolution and even some questioning mm. whether there ever was a historical Adam. Yeah. So uh, it's it's a slippery slide. Not every human, not every individual pastor or theologian slides the same distance down the slippery slide, but historically we see the church sliding farther and farther away. And we have Christians who are confused, uh, especially in the younger generations, mm -hmm. about abortion, about homosexuality, yeah. transgenderism. And there, there are evangelicals who claim to be evangelicals who are uh, accepting of homosexual behavior mm -hmm. and homosexual identity. And it, it's all related to the foundational chapters of Genesis. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's so important. And, uh, you know, there's something that comes to mind is I, I think some people, they view um, conversations about Genesis as, as I mentioned before, as such a distraction. And, and I, some people even get um, bothered by when we would use the word compromised view of Genesis. And it's interesting today because, of course, I'm around a lot of apologetic circles and so forth. But they, they don't even like that term. But it's like we hold a view and we believe it's a biblical view and it's consistent with the biblical authority and script science confirms that. Um, so of course we would, we would say that, but I, I do believe it is a bold stance, but I think it's consistent with what we see in scripture is it, as we laid out, it is a compromise and it's an unnecessary one because there's such this, this uh, bent, it seems towards um, accommodation that we saw of, well, majority saying this, Maybe if we just agree and just talk about the gospel, what we said, well, of, of course, and I know you guys have said this, and it's, unfortunate, it's an unfortunate um, type of slander that comes against answers in Genesis that say, oh, they, they believe you have to believe in a young earth to be saved. Ken Ham has made that very clear multiple times. Oh, yeah. He says the foundation of the gospel relies on, on Genesis, and he said that over and over, and I, I see so many people who who uh, spin it that way. And no, I don't, I don't know anyone who's even saying that. No, <laughs> um, there's no, there's no responsible young earth creation no. uh, leader 
of any kind that believes that you have to believe in a young earth no. to be saved. That's right. that's that's a distortion by our opponents. And uh, I think that keeps what I see a lot too is when I people throw out stuff like that, and it's as if it's almost a way to intellectually um, distance themselves where they want to categorize um, AIG or ICR or CMI as if they're like flat earthers. And I know Dr. Faulkner has written a lot to refute flat earth and it's, it's not even in the same category. <laughs> right. Right. And you know, if, if people don't like the word compromise, yeah. it, look it up in a dictionary. It, it means you're trying to fit two ideas together in the, in the middle yeah. ground. Uh, if you don't like that, use the word integrationist. Mm. Use the word uh, accommodationist. I mean, all those words mean the same thing. You're trying to to wed together uh, opposing ideas, and they can't be done because they are fundamentally uh, opposed to each other. The naturalistic worldview is fundamentally opposed to the biblical worldview. You can't combine them together. And... Uh, it's, it's like talking about evangelical atheism. You, yeah, you, yeah. you just can't do it. Um, and so people get uh, upset with labels, but, I mean, we, we the labels are unavoidable. Yeah. I mean, somebody is an evolutionist, somebody is a creationist, somebody is an old earth creationist. Those are objective labels. Uh, if, if somebody feels uncomfortable with the term, well, I'm sorry, but you, you can't. You can't uh, have any conversation if you're constantly saying, well, those who um, tend to believe that evolution is true or those who believe that God created, but he used evolution, the, the conversation becomes too cumbersome. Mm -hmm. And uh, we all know. And we in Answers in Genesis, we don't say that people who are compromised are going to hell. Mm -hmm. We don't say that they are heretics. We, we say they are Christians who have tried to make peace with millions of years. It's, it's a compromise, and mm -hmm. it's, it's an attempt to say, okay, we'll give you the millions of years, but you, you have to give us the gospel and, and the Bible uh, and the miracles, so we're, we're not going to come all the way with you. But um, it, doesn't, it doesn't work if we are being faithful to the Scriptures uh, the Old and the New Testament together confirm that Genesis 1 to 11 is straightforward history. Yeah. Amen. I, I'm just really grateful for our time. I know some people, they, they want to think about this issue as if it's like when Paul says um, meaningless arguments about genealogies. Of course, we get the age of the earth from genealogies. So is this the same thing that Paul's talking about when we talk about the age of the earth and genealogies or is this different? No, it's not. We're talking about the history in Genesis, mm. which is foundational to the rest of the Bible. And uh, the Bible is not just a book of pious platitudes and mm. spiritual principles. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a book of history. Two-thirds of the Old Testament is history. One-third of the New Testament is history. And there are a lot of historical statements scattered through the other books. And that history... Is, is foundational to what the Bible is teaching uh, about theology, about God, about uh, the nature of man, and about morality. And so uh, the more that the history in the Bible is discredited or uh, 
people think that it's not trustworthy, yeah. the more they're going to question the theological and the moral truths that are revealed in the Bible. And so uh, it's a foundational issue. Yeah. And, and it's foundational for the evolutionists, too. You can look at their own writings and they'll say that as a result of evolution, uh, there, there's no basis for any moral absolutes. There's no basis for purpose and meaning in life because we're all, along with the rest of the, the physical world, we're all the result of an accident over millions and millions of years of accidents with no, no mind directing it, no, no purpose or meaning to it. So it really matters what we believe about origins, and uh, it matters what we believe about this book. Because if if Genesis is wrong, if that's mythology, then Jesus died for a mythological problem, mm -hmm. and he's a mythological savior offering us a mythological hope. So it really matters for the Christian to have uh, integrity and consistency but it matters if you're watching and you're not a Christian. It matters because if this book is true, if Jesus is who he claimed to be, then there is a God to whom you are morally accountable and you will one day stand before the judge of all the earth. And your only hope on that judgment day is if in this life you put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as the one who died in your place for your sin problem that uh, made you guilty before God. And so it really matters what we believe about origins. And it's not just a debate about time. It's an it's yeah. issue of the truth and authority of God's Word. Amen. Thank you so much, Dr. Mortensen. This has been a joy to visit with you today and that we could show people that Christianity is total truth for all of reality, that, that we don't have a God who calls death good, sin is not good, there wasn't death in the world before the fall. We, we truly have a God who, who loves us and took on flesh and, and died the death that we deserved for our sin and our rebellion. And and that's a beautiful gift that all who turn to him can be saved. And it's it's not anything we've done. That's right. It's really a gift. Can I add, yes. um, most people aren't going to read this book. Um, I understand that. That's why I've done a, a one-hour lecture that kind of mm -hmm. summarizes the heart of the book. And you can watch it for free on our website. If you go up to the top, uh, there's a, a line where there's a number of options. One of them is media. If you click on that, you can go to videos and you can find my lecture, Millions of Years, Where Did the Idea Come From? And that will kind of give you a one-hour summary of what happened in the 19th century, how the church compromised with that, and what the catastrophic consequences have been. Uh, ever since. Yes, yes, it, I highly recommend that video, and I think, Lord willing, there will be a turning point towards back towards biblical authority, and I know Answers in Genesis and, and your your work and excellent research, and Snelling and Dr. Faulkner and Dr. Jensen and many others are doing great work um, to really equip the next generation and the current generation to turn back to the authority of God's Word, and I, I hope you guys will support the Ark Encounter and the Creation Museum and Answers in Genesis and all that they're doing. And uh, please share, like, and subscribe so more people can engage with the truth. And thanks for watching.